Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's Recovery Sort Of. I am Jason, a guy who has never been to treatment for alcohol. And I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. I'm Jenny. I'm also a person in long-term recovery. And I'm Charlie. I think I'm a recovered person. Welcome, Charlie. Oh, hi. Ah, the difference in terminology. I love it. <laughs> we won't uh, We won't waste the whole episode right. talking about that. Though. So we're, we're going to talk about treatment for alcoholism and, and maybe more specifically, uh, why that seems more difficult in 2022 to find as opposed to treatment for, you know, an opioid uh, use disorder. So, Charlie, why don't you just take five to eight minutes, tell us about yourself, tell us about how you got here, tell us why you're here today to talk about alcohol treatment? Sure. A, I'm Charlie. B, this, if, if you're seeing this on film, you can see that I'm old. Um, I have been involved either directly or peripherally in drug treatment since it was invented in about 1984. Uh, that's when people realized they could make money off of it. And at that time, I was a union officer and nobody wanted to get involved in that stuff. So they said, Gerhard, take care of this. So from the days of the corner store rehab uh, through AA and all that kind of stuff, I've been involved at one level or another since 84. And I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I started with AA. That, did AA religiously hated it? It was probably one of the biggest obstacles to getting sober that I had to overcome. And um, my involvement with voices uh, basically uh, started. Somebody asked me to go to a fundraiser, and I'm I'm expecting like yeah, twelve people, <laughs> and we get there, and there's like three hundred and twelve people. Mm-hmm. And when I asked, "What do you guys do?" because I have had nonprofits of my own, and I worked for a lot of nonprofits, and labor unions are technically nonprofits, yada yada yada. And I don't have a lot of faith in nonprofits. So when I asked, what, what do you do here? They said, somebody said, basically, we give money to people. And I thought, damn, that's what I want to hear. That put, <laughs> they put the rubber on the road. Um, and I have been involved and impressed ever since then. So what brings what brings me here today is I, Honey Bunny is my girlfriend. And yes, old guys have girlfriends. Uh and she's an active alcoholic, and she has wants to quit. You know, everybody knows how that works, and she's done it a million times. We all know how that works. I could not think of a better place to get help than voices. So when she said, that's enough of this, um, I, you know, I, I need help, I need treatment. And we've both done 12-step programs. We, 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 on a personal level, just they don't work for us. So what we knew she needed was detox we tried outpatient detox uh and the results of that were basically that yeah she got through it it's yeah four or five days and really feeling shitty and and this was um you know drug assisted medically assisted and it also doesn't involve the commitment if you're if um that that in inpatient treatment involves it makes it you go in it makes an impression in your brain i'm something's different i'm doing something different and when you come out, you can think clearer. 
So we knew she needed an inpatient detox, and we came up here. And I, I know most of the people here, and I have a lot of respect for them. And we came up here, said, "Okay, we need. We need she's on Medicare. We need a detox." Well, the only place they could find at the moment, and these issues change moment to moment, but the only place they could find then was Sun Delaware. I don't know if I don't, you, you guys want to hear horror stories, or you just want to go through. Are you interested in horror stories? Let me put it this way: it was a true two-day horror story. Hmm resulting in nothing but gross incompetence, puking in trash cans, and then being told at the end of two days of bullshit that, oh, I'm sorry, our doctor says that she can't come in because she's too old. And during that two days, we watched obvious junkies. I'm going to say junkie because I don't know what the guys are on. This guy this guy was all peppered up, so he, yeah, he, we'll call him Ralph. And uh, he comes in, flops there. Hey, Ralph, detox? Yeah. Okay, Ralph goes in, gets whatever he needs, I assume, because he's obviously a frequent flyer. Meanwhile, we have spent two days throwing up and waiting for the help and yada, yada, yada. And the end of the two days, we're told, and oh, it's a it's two and a half hour drive each way, too. That matters. And at the end of the two days, she got nothing except have a nice trip, drive careful. Uh and that was a recommendation that we got from Voices, which I can't, you know, I couldn't think of a better place to get a recommendation. One to two later, we come back and try it again. No, wait, I'm going to stop you. Uh, stop me. So why wouldn't they take her? Uh, that's a whole other story. By they, What they said was, she's too old. Now, is okay. that legal? Yeah, can I? So for people that don't know, um, alcohol withdrawal is one of the few withdrawals that can literally kill Correct. you. So it a lot of times requires like medical supervision, Absolutely. you know, because it can be incredibly dangerous if you're a long-term alcoholic. I don't know if they still use the firm fourth stage or whatever the stages no are anymore. But yeah, if you're a long-term alcoholic and you've been drinking for a lot of years, that can be a fatal. It's one of the few yes. actually withdrawals that's fatal. I mean, even with, you know, I withdrew from heroin. It didn't kill me. I laid on a couch for a couple of days, felt like shit for a week. You know, I wanted to kill myself probably, but I survived it and I didn't have to worry about literal death. Um, so alcohol does should be more medically supervised if you're. Exactly. Yeah. And in my years at AA and just generally bouncing around in the drug treatment uh, community, I have had a number of people. I don't know anybody who died from it, from detoxing. But I've had a number of people who got in terrible, terrible condition because they tried to do it at home. They tried mm -hmm. to do it without assistance. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a medical. I, I, if it can be a medical emergency, and it certainly is a, a serious medical condition, alcohol withdrawal. So I flipped out during the process, and I, I'm, you know, the doctor says she can't come in. Let me to the doctor. Oh, he's remote. You can't talk to the doctor. Who are you? Well, I'm staff, and I'm yelling at staff. You know, and can you explain that part about the remote doctor thing? Did you guys know about this? Like, oh, this is common. Okay, yeah, I can certainly explain it. This also covers hospitals. They do the same thing for all admissions. Okay, um, well, I'm not a hospital guy, but I know that they do this for many, and many hospitals do it for all. And I've been bounced out on my ear too of hospitals. You don't have an on-site doctor because you got to pay that dude. Mm. So instead, you pick a doctor, and I'm not—I'm prepared to say they're all a bunch of quacks, but you know, there's probably a good one. I sound like uh, the last orange president talking about Mexicans. <laughs> but at any rate, you want the cheapest 
possible way to go on everything. So you hire a doctor, and that doctor consults online. You And I've seen this happen in hospitals where the doctor's sitting here and the patient's sitting there, and the doctor just doesn't even look at the patient, just diagnoses and treats by computer. You hire the cheapest thing you can get. I, I worked for one organization, a recovery organization, uh, and they had a strange doctor who had some strange problems. And I said, why do you guys bring this bozo up here? And the answer I got was because he's the only one who will come here for what we're willing to pay. Now, that's what I call careful research from an economic perspective at any rate. So they hire people who they don't necessarily even know or have any relationship with. They type a report. Now, watch, I've seen the reports. The reports are typed. They're, they're worded defensively so that you can't take this this report that they wrote and call back later and sue them. Hospitals do that. Individual doctors do that. And don't let me ramble. That's why they have the off-site doctors. Hospitals have what is known as hospitalists. However, the hospitalists don't work in the hospital. Okay? They are part of a separate group. I had somebody I was admitting, and this was, this was for not a drug issue, and who admitted her? Because the thing was bonkers. The whole situation was weird. Who admitted her? Oh, well, I'm sure it was a hospitalist. Oh, who is the hospital? Oh, we wouldn't know. Well, can I talk to the hospitalist? Oh, the hospitalist is remote. So there are little practices out there that just admit people. Hmm. You used to be your family physician admitted you, but they don't do that anymore. Now you get a hospitalist to admit you, and he makes decisions based on whatever the hospital itself tells him. So that's the deal with the remote doctors, and it's a terrible deal. Having a doctor on site would have been more beneficial to your girlfriend. Oh, absolutely. Well, no, she was she was an active withdrawal. I mean, she she's shaking and puking, um, and uh, yeah. So this remote doctor business, they couldn't see that, and they wouldn't. Admit- they, well, it was not. There was no. It depended entirely on what the staff that I might add. I don't like to name names, but this is Sun Delaware. Totally incompetent staff. We spent, out of that two days that we were down there, we came back, down and back, we spent all but maybe an hour and a half all all by ourselves looking for staff, trying to find out what's going on. So I asked the nurse. They sent the nurse. Are you a nurse? Yes. Are you a registered nurse? Yes. Does this look like alcohol withdrawal? Oh, yes. And would you consider that to be a medical problem? Yes. And is this a medical facility? Yes. Uh, Well, then... She needs help, doesn't she? Oh, yes, she does. Well, where shall we go for that? I don't know. That's the response we got. And did it just seem like they weren't educated in alcohol withdrawal? These are for-profit businesses, okay? If I get on my socialist thing, you shut me up. (laughs) These are for-profit businesses, and the, the economic model for a business today used to be make a profit. Now it is maximize profit. Okay, so you want the cheapest possible task, which in this case they have chosen with uh, alcohol and, and drug treatment, and the results of it are really of no uh, no interest. They don't want liability, uh, so we won't because an alcoholic could die here, and that could be if, iffy. Hmm. Uh, we'd really rather not treat alcoholics. The fact that. Insurance companies reimburse psychiatric care, which is what we call alcohol withdrawal, and, and, and acute withdrawal is physical. It's not psychiatric, it's physical. And 
Um, they about twenty percent of what they would pay for a, a normal medical procedure of the same intensity, and so they really don't want people with insurance. Now, this is also true of the local hospitals. Uh, it is true of Christiana Care, which owns most everything. It is true of Union. I got thrown out years ago. It's really not relevant because it was so long ago. They refused me treatment at um, Ches- Upper Chesapeake, and it's not profitable. Bottom line. Alcoholics aren't profitable. You can take your average junkie, and if I uh, drunk, so that make that makes it even. Alcoholic, drunk, drunk, junk. You can take your average junkie, stick them in a bed, give them whatever you want to give them to ease the pain a little bit, and to put them to shut them up. And you don't really have to worry about that person. You don't need to have competent medical staff on site. I have not researched, and these are freestanding clinics that I'm talking about, and I haven't researched the regulations on those. Um, the hospitals that I just mentioned, in general, will not take a detox person. They will do go to any length they uh, to avoid actually admitting them. They they have what they call discharge protocols that they wrote because the the, uh, the state saw the need for regulations today. Well, you write down what, what, what you want and we'll you know, implement it. So they have a discharge protocol that basically allows them to stabilize you. I mean, that could mean giving you a Xanax, literally. Hmm. And stabilize you. They give you a pamphlet and out the door you go. If you go in, and a lot of people are, will say they're suicidal because they will always take a person who claims suicidal ideation. What you get for that, you get locked up in a lockdown unit with a bunch of other crazy people. Sorry, excuse me, crazy people, but that's the way it is. Um, And you get your shoelaces lost. And if they find out while you're in there that you are withdrawing from a drug, they decide suddenly that, whoa, wait a minute, this person isn't suicidal. And out the door you go. Yeah, and when uh, I first got into recovery, that was the way that you got people into treatment. It, it was to to say but, they were suicidal, and then hopefully get, and, and they, they would get. They will, yeah. But you don't get treatment. What Not you anymore. Get, I mean, yeah. I, no, I, I mean, I have, I have a penchant for hanging around with disturbed people. I suppose, but that's how we met. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Now that you mention it, they lock you up. They drug you mildly. They take away your shoelaces, and that's it. And you will see a psych guy. That's today's treatment. Yeah, today it's yeah. yeah very, very few people who go. I always call it the six four because the places I've done it had psych units were always they were always on the six four. But all you do is sit around. You don't get any treatment. You once again get maybe maybe stabilized. Now there is a population that uh, definitely needs that for openers, and then we'll go on through the system for mental health care treatment whatever they need i'm not saying they don't do anything but they don't do much mm. so that's what you get if you're suicidal and also if you are if you go in that way you are basically waiving your right to check out at will yeah okay now stuck, I could what, 48 be hours i think it used to huh? be it used to be 48 hours uh, i think yeah, they could uh, yeah. yeah and i'm not sure the hours and i'm not legally positive that what i'm saying is correct but yes once you say you're suicidal you're you. no longer yep. competent and therefore you can't check out ama <laughs> That's the state of, the, of of treatment right now. Um, they are what has happened the both times we've tried it with Honey Bunny is that they have lied in our faces. They have lied to voices, and 
quickly have jumped through all the, the first time. It was very heavily assisted by voices. That was on Delaware. And uh, we did every, they did everything they could do. We did everything. You know, it was all prearranged, blah, blah, blah. Sorry. You can come back later. Hospitals will no longer treat people for withdrawal. So as a result of that, those people have to go to these freestanding clinics. Now, when we go to the freestanding clinics, we have Ralph, the skateboarder who I told you about, who walks in, flops on a sofa, walks right through the door. Okay. So the next shot was Meadowwood because they took at that time, they stopped at Cincy. But they, at that time, which was a couple of months ago, uh, they took Medicare. So we got there bright and early. Everything's cool. They made us wait on the porch. You all have to wait outside because we're still on COVID procedures. Well, it sounded like bullshit. It was bullshit, but okay. Who am I to challenge that? So we sit outside. It's a hot summer day. We're on the porch, okay, for five and a half hours. Um, while we're on the porch, as the day wears on, the walking dead come up the sidewalk. I mean, these guys were whacked. And clearly, you, you can tell a junkie from an alcoholic from a distance, at least I can. And so we have 10, maybe eight, 10 people, something like that, come, come walking up. And sit on the porch. And we were the first ones there. So we're there watching these guys come in. You, you, there was a phone for admittance. Pick up the phone. The phone doesn't work. Okay, you knock on the door. You don't get an answer. Eventually, I realized what was going on. They had a camera up there, and they were monitoring who sat down. And one by one by one by one, over the course of like five and a half hours, they took all of the addicts in. Everybody came out, they picked up their paperwork, they stuck a Q-tip up their nose and said, okay, and you go. We sat. And they even came out and looked for one guy. He, he, he got bored and went and sat in his car. And they even came out from one guy and looked in all the cars to take him in while we we're still sitting there. Hmm. And uh, at the end of the, our patience, I asked for our, oh, they, I, I said, you know, we're not sitting here anymore. And we'd like our cards back. And they said, well, what we can do is she can go sit inside in the lobby. You can leave, and we'll figure out what we're going to do with her. Uh, that you're not going to, I'm not going to leave somebody under those conditions. You know, uh, we'll figure out what we're going to do with her. Sorry. So we decided to leave. We couldn't get her cards back. And that, that's a whole other story. But they would not give her back her insurance cards and her Medicare card. And finally, she found a, a staff member. They all have red shirts. So she found a staff member going into work, and she said, would you please? I, when I called for the cards, they hung up on me. Uh, the, the admissions did. And um, second time, I don't blame him because I told him, you're going to have to call the cops in a minute. We can do that. Click. That guy who she flagged down went in and got her cards and gave us the cards, and we went home. Now, the biggest, this, despite all the bullshit that this put us through, the biggest problem is that what would happen if, if a to to you to your standard person looking for treatment who really doesn't want to go into treatment anyway hardly anybody is all excited about it and if you got that treatment twice once if you got that treatment once would you come back to voices they're not going to separate the thing that you got a bunch of lying jerks on the one end okay it it is a major discouragement for anybody who seeks alcohol treatment and it is system-wide and i and we did a voices did 
I had something. I didn't have anything to do with it. I just listened. But they did an excellent webinar uh, based on a report from the Legal Action Center, which is a great big legal action center, national outfit, and on, on exactly this subject. So what one of the things that does is I think we had 400 attendees or something like that. I'm not sure. But it ain't just me thinking this, okay? The, they, they, they documented each state. Uh, who does the treatments, who, who will do a detox, and what it's like, what are the state laws in detail. And that was directed at hospitals. That was not directed at, uh, at freestanding clinics. But that problem is endemic. It's not a local thing. It's not my imagination. And if you happen to be a family member trying to get dad into detox, you're just going to assume that that's the way it is. It's abusive, to say the least. What I was, what, what I want to mention is, and I mentioned it, I'm repeating it. Okay, while we were sitting on the porch and the junkies are going marching in, I suddenly realized that they have a camera out there and they're looking at who they decide to admit. Now, why would you have that kind of prejudice? Is it just because we hate alcoholics? No, junkies are cheaper to treat. And by and large, a lot of them at any rate, are on Medicaid, not Medicare, Medicaid, which pays very well and is very dependable. So what they are looking for is addicts, non-alcoholic addicts, addicts to other things, who are on Medicaid. That's the right, at this moment, that is the most profitable bunch. Now, Meadowood just recently, since we were there, just I'm told by people here at Voices, just, just stop taking any Maryland insurance. If you've got insurance in Maryland, that you can't get in there. Uh, the reason for that would be that Maryland has somewhere in their laws, Maryland is fairly well-regulated, compared to other states, the medical kind of things. And they found something in Maryland law that required them to, uh, to this is all guesswork, that, that in Maryland law that required them to perform a service that they didn't want to perform. So they just said, to hell with it. And uh, we don't take Maryland insurance anymore. This is a matter. So the whole issue in the hospitals and the freestanding clinics that I've been exposed to Okay, the the whole issue is we have beds. We want to fill them as profitably as we can, which is why when you call up and say, do you treat do you do, you do alcohol withdrawal? Oh, yes, sir. And blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you go through, we jump through the hoops, do everything you're told to do, confirm, reconfirm, show up and then, you know, won't let you in. Um, there are problems that I have not. I'm just talking to people around here they, they, they'll do anything to get rid of you we can't treat her her blood pressure is too high well we, we, we can't treat him he's got copd pick one they'll, they'll dump your ass out for whatever reason you're untreatable sorry and it's all about how much money can we make on a bed the reason that they don't tell you no we don't do alcohol withdrawal is because they might have a vacant bed so if they got a bed that they haven't been able to fill that day they'd rather fill it with an alcoholic then, then have it go empty. Hmm. So that's why they run you all over Hell's Half Acre. That's not all I got, but that's enough, I think, to <laughs> start. Just a, just a point of clarification, you know, often in the opioid recovery community, there we hear this backlash of like, why are we giving free needles out for harm reduction when people with diabetes can't, you know, have to pay so much for their needles or whatever? And, and I think the argument has been for a long time, 
let's take the people who are getting the free needles and the treatment they deserve out of it. Why aren't people with diabetes also getting free needles is really the question. And I just don't want this to come across as like bashing of people who are struggling with substance use disorder in any way, shape or form. Like it's not it's not a oh, well, they're preferring these people. So now we hate them because they're getting treatment. It's like, oh, OK, well, they can access treatment. Why can't we also? Right. We, we don't want to like demonize a group who is getting some services at this moment. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that yeah, was a that was point never, of clarification. Uh, uh, yeah, good point. But that was never my intention. I, what um, I was never big on saving alcoholics. I was never big on saving drug addicts because uh, my take was the same as the rest of the world. I drink the shit. I buy the shit. You know, uh, why is it your job to take care of me? But I changed that when I got when I became familiar with voices because what the thing that impressed me the most is how far the founders and I, I'm only saying founders because I don't know anybody currently I don't know their history and all that kind of stuff but every time they have a seminar or training everybody tells you the, the people who do the training generally end up telling you their story a little bit how far they have come from where they were to where they are um, I got a lifetime of seminars and trainings and it goes on forever the, the guys here are the best that I've ever seen on any subject and I looked at that and I thought, these people have become really, really good educators, trainers, people, okay? And when they're telling me where they were five years ago or three years ago, I changed my mind as far as, as, far as uh, do, do these lives have value? Um, so I got nothing against addicts. I got nothing against alcoholics. When they do nasty things, I don't like the nasty things, and I will certainly call them out on it. So the prejudice that you're trying to address is not just a prejudice against alcoholics versus addicts, both of them are addictions. Um, it's a prejudice against mental health. And I dealt with this on a national level for years, and there is a... Why would you only pay 20% for a bed in an alcohol detox? But if that was an ICU, you, you'll pay the whole thing or you'll pay whatever your contract calls for. Why would you pay? Why would you reimburse at a lower level? Um, they have always done that with mental health issues. And for things like talk therapy, where you're going to see a psychologist every week because, because of your mommy issues, I can understand limiting that because it'll go on forever. A lot of people don't have anybody to talk to, so they'll talk on your dime mm -hmm. forever. But it's a prejudice against mental health issues or mental – it's against mental health, okay? they People are crazy. And uh, that's existed since I got involved in – 83 was when I first got involved in medical insurance. That has existed – since then and it was in full bloom and it's just getting bloomier and the reason it's getting bloomier is because largely because of the the opioid situation and because alcoholism is not as accepted as it used to be no big deal if you came to work drunk in in, in industrial baltimore you know uh nobody gave a damn then some Body decided they could mark they could market employee assistance and that way you wouldn't have to work worry about fred falling on the steel at sparrow's point and uh it became a marketable product. It was complete bullshit, but a lot of people made a lot of money on it. And the, the, now you have that same prejudice that is applied to people who use other substances applied to alcoholics. Now, if you come to work drunk, you're getting sent home. 
30 years ago. I mean, if you came, if you were a crane operator who could wipe out everything on the ground and came to work drunk, you just say, okay, Jones, you know, here, leave your bottle down here till you, you know, uh, till lunchtime. And so the acceptance, acceptance, social acceptance, or actually the industrial or employment uh, acceptance of alcoholism has changed. So you have a much larger pot. You got alcoholics and you have a, certainly a whole lot, hell of a lot more people with other substance problems. And it has become more expensive. I wonder if part of the problem or, or maybe what where this stems from is the fact that we're such a reactive society instead of a proactive Absolutely. society. Because, in, you know, we're not giving people the things they need. We were talking about the, the mommy and me episode, you know, and on there, I'm just thinking through, we, we have the research to show the importance in the, of the first two years of a child's life, like the huge importance. And not that the rest of it doesn't matter or doesn't impact them, but we're seeing the research that shows the first two years and really the first two months. And it's like, we have the opportunity to provide services to all moms, not just moms in recovery. Why don't we just finance them and support them for two years with all kinds of services about how to make healthy food and how to be educated and how to parent better and you know what we know so we have the we have the ability to know what needs to be invested up front and yet instead what we do is just as a society we react to everything so you know maybe 30 years ago it was probably equally difficult to get in for alcohol or heroin or fentanyl or any opiate but now we have all this grant funding that is supporting people getting in for opiates, which is great because we need it. And yet when we are a reactive society, we're reacting to like the, the tragedy in front of us, which is skipping over the other tragedies that are also in front of us, but not making as huge of an impact, right? Like, I mean, alcohol deaths, people dying from alcohol, it's way up there. And yet we don't have the same response because it's more like, oh, this is all happening at once and it's new for opioids. We got to do something now. And, and I guess just if we were a more proactive society that had whatever service you needed available to whoever needed it, that would be much easier. Yeah. And then who would make the profit? This episode has been brought to you in part by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, Members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. Yeah, and that was a thing I recently heard about just the the healthcare system in general being being broke and I won't take up too much time with this, but now it's all funded through insurance. So it's like the insurance at the top almost dictates the Doesn't care dictate. that's it getting done. Dictate. Yeah, it, it dictates the care that's coming down later. So if things aren't insurance reimbursable, if they aren't, you know, something the insurance is going to company or uh, going to cover, the doctors aren't even recommended or telling people about it. And not only that, they aren't invested in your long-term health care because most people turn over their insurance 
often. So it's likely you're going to turn over your insurance or get a different insurance provider in the next five to six years. So they figure if they can just get you through this next couple years and kick the can down the road, there's no preventative care. There's no long-term concern for your health or none of that. No, there are, there, um, there's not. Right. And, so is anyone doing alcohol detox well or is anybody out there I, providing a I, decent okay, service? The only detox <laughs> I ever did, okay, when, in what the hell year? About 14 years ago or so, 2009, 2008, I went into GBMC. I was so swat for the five days. Of, I was in a lockdown unit. I cannot say I was treated well, but I cannot say I was treated badly. They checked me for a stroke because I couldn't talk right and kept me. I had librium legs. It took me two weeks to, before I went to Ashley afterwards, and it took me two weeks before I could get around without a walker just from librium legs. But uh, that was a unfortunate, unpleasant experience. But I can't say I was mistreated. I can't say that I was humiliated. Um, I had to ask for a mattress uh, because all they had was a bolted down recliner. But I, I can live with that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nobody called me any names. Nobody made me sit in the heat. Nobody made me drive five hours one way just to tell me that, or back and forth to just to tell me that I can't come in. Um, that was my experience. People I have been close enough to, this is prior, this is ending uh, maybe 2014, 2015. I did not have bad experiences in the hospital at detox. But the, the, the bad experiences that I'm seeing now, because I don't get into the detox, right? Nobody goes, uh, is <laughs> the lengths that they go to to keep you out. And I think we all know how much energy goes into making the decision to get Charlie sober, making the decision to get him to so at least don't at least he stops shit in the bed. It's a big deal for most people. They they don't do this every day. It's not that's not like frequent flyers. Uh, they get one or two chances to try to get well, and when you take those chances and try to get well, and you are abused. There's no other term. I'm sorry, and you are abused before you even get into the place. How are you going to react the next time? <laughs> you know, I mean, are you going to come back? Right. And I've asked that question, and nobody knows. Now, I got to admit, tracking addicts of any kind is a big problem. Just put a tag in their ear like the, yeah, the like chip. The animals. You got to put the chip. The, the one that was in the virus, uh, antivirus. Right, right. We should all be <laughs> tracked The now. one that was in the vaccine. Uh, just use that one. Well, I'm talking success rates, okay? <laughs> right, yeah. How was your withdrawal? Did you complete it? And mm. what is your aftercare? Now, mm. Ashley was meticulous with that kind of stuff. Okay. So funny enough, recently we have a, a someone I'm close with that is just, I mean, a, actually just going into Ashley agreed to do a detox for this person versus making them stay for the 20 for alcohol specifically for alcohol they're going to do a detox a seven-day detox and not we weren't even aware that they did that sort of thing this this isn't a person that came through voices or anything else this is a private individual who has insurance and whatever insurance doesn't cover they have enough money to cover whatever they need and who probably uh, right so they have a private donor funding. in the past to tell you the truth yeah uh, I, no he wasn't a donor in the past I, but he so, just somebody yeah. maybe but somebody in the family might have been but i yeah i don't want to be hard on Ashley. they saved my yeah. ass they really did but yeah I, they were they're going to do a detail which again but, we didn't even know they did they, but yeah they, well Maybe we should ask. Right uh, now, here's, <laughs> now, here's the problem. Yeah. Here is the problem with Ashley, and I have asked voices why. Why don't why don't we deal with Ashley? And the problem is, a you got to have the money up front, 
and they won't take any government insurance. Yeah, insurance. So yeah. My, my sister paid for me to go. $20,000. I was in a wheelchair because mm. I still had delivery legs. And uh, she, she wrote a check for twenty grand, and I, if, I, if I'd have been stronger, I mean, that wheelchair would have been out of there. Yeah. Uh, so, which is always the case. If you have money, you can find yeah, treatment. But, oh, but if money, you don't, yeah, yeah, yeah right? it'll be pleasant. <laughs> yeah, you right. can get your twice a day massage. Um, I'm not kidding. You really can. So right. I don't, I don't know if this. I mean, I didn't realize it was more of a universal program. I've had my thoughts when I was working at Voices, just knowing what the grant funded if somebody came in to talk and seek help for fentanyl versus if somebody came in for alcohol, like knowing the grant doesn't cover that at all. Like it's still part of my job to help them, but also knowing that the funding isn't there necessarily to help them, which is interesting and it limits what facilities they can go to, what beds they can get. So I I know that I know that I know an individual whose son has struggled with alcohol and their son has tried to find recovery in Maryland and in Florida at different points in times. And when they, you know, have a slip or a relapse or whatever it is, like basically this individual goes, you know, what we would say goes hard. Like they're like obliterated about to die on a beach, haven't eaten in days, like just been drinking, binge drinking the whole time. And so the police will be called and they get found and the paramedics come and they take them to a hospital and within hours they're back out on the street in a stupor. In a fucking stupor. (laughs) Like the hospital's releasing them when they're not even not drunk yet. Like they're still drunk getting sent out. And this happened, this person's son, this went on for like two weeks straight partially in Maryland, partially in Florida. And this was like five, six, seven different hospital visits. Nobody's doing a fucking thing except sending this kid back out. He's not a kid. He's like in his 30s, but whatever. He's just getting sent back out, still fucking impaired. So it's like, I I, I do know this story is real to some extent. Like this is happening in Maryland, in Florida, probably everywhere else. Nobody wants to deal with this shit. Yeah, and the healthcare system, I mean, in general, in this area, I can't speak for too many other areas, but always there's been a ton of stigma around addiction, any kind of addiction. If you go there looking for help or looking for treatment, they've never been a good resource for people. And and you think they would be because it's such a health they don't care uh, about hindrance the <laughs> on our community. You know, it's, right. it's such it has such a big impact in this small community. You think the hospital would be the place to care and well, they could act like most of the time they could give a shit less. And you, and you remind me of the further point of that story of this person's son is that even when they did, the son did get into treatment, right? He had a list of like, there was a couple of the recovery or halfway housing places that looked really good. He went and toured them. He was like, this one would be great. And they were the ones his insurance wouldn't cover, right? So then he sent to these other ones that are like, in areas you don't want to be in around (laughs) types of people that aren't really recovering. And it's like, it's almost like he's set up to fail by the lack of assistance or or ways that we step in to intervene. It's opposite filters. Okay. You you, you guys aren't jaded enough yet to see the reality. I swear to God. Um, It is all about money and is all about maximizing profit today it's not about maximizing profit tomorrow okay we as a nation because of the un i'm not against capitalism if we had a socialist party i'd be the president but capitalism functions but it's got to be regulated in some way 
because otherwise you end up with what we got now, only it'll get worse. Well, and your healthcare system shouldn't be uh, capitalism like that. Uh, well, but it is. Yeah. Oh, I know okay. it is. Yeah. And, 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 and <laughs> all, all, they're all, unless, never mind, even government things are ruled by the budget. <laughs> and our healthcare system is totally capitalist. If you have a good doctor, and I have had several. If you have a good doctor, he is deliberately handicapped in doing what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. For instance, doctors who want to make rounds, they don't want doctors in there making rounds anymore. They make it as hard as they can for them to do, you know, come in in the morning, check with their patients. They haven't admitted the patients. That patient's out of their hands. The hospital, the hospitalist admitted that patient. But it's entirely capitalist-based. It's rampant, unbridled capitalism and it is also unfortunately a big part of human nature uh which has recently been demonstrated with the 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 student loan forgiveness i got friends who are good people who went nuts because somebody got a break on their student loans they're 70 years old (laughs) nobody gave me a break (laughs) i suffered so you should too (laughs) yeah really yeah so it, it it is a from a humanist perspective, from a social perspective, this is a failed system. Mm. Okay, and I didn't used to be this hardcore about it. Okay, I th- this is many years of of fighting the system. We're trying to make the system work without believing these people were as profit oriented as they are. So it's it, it's it's unbridled capitalism. Now it is obvious, and if you think back. We have so much more medical technology. We have are able to treat so many more conditions. And back in the olden days, your insurance was to pay for mom's operation right before she died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just a huge, heartless industry. That's what it is. That's the healthcare system. I don't care if it's mental health. It's worse for mental health. Yeah, mental health is terrible. But I don't really care what your condition is and i've also had a lot of experiences where my nonprofit prejudices came in with like the cancer society and the american heart association and 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 the alzheimer's association in trying to deal with asking them for help with things i used to do all i had, my, I had a full-time job getting people to health care for like many years and those organizations don't really give a damn when you when it comes down to what do you do I've had him get mad. I asked if there was any potential treatments one time in the in the pipeline for Alzheimer's. We don't do that, sir. Click. <laughs> that was cancer. That was Alzheimer's. Yeah. So my wife now, when there's the people standing on the corners, you know, collecting money from the different churches for different services or whatever, she'll sit there and ask them before she'll give me any money. She'll say, well, what do you, you know, what do you actually do? And then what areas do you serve? And you'll find out like they'll be collecting money like here in Elkton and they don't even provide services in this area. They provide services, you know, up in like Newcastle or Wilmington or somewhere else. And it's like, so you're going to come take donations from people in this area to help people that don't even live here. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't know if I have a problem with that, yeah. uh, quite frankly. I mean, if you're talking about God the gods with the buckets and stuff like that, yeah. but, I mean, th- that perspective, at least somebody in New Jersey is getting help. Yeah. Um, we need to focus now, and I'm willing to shut up as soon as I go too long. The One of the things that would be handy for you guys to take a look at would be the transcript of the uh, webinar. And 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 the uh, legal action uh, committee or legal action council, whatever the hell it is, report because legal that, action center it yeah. nails down the the fact that this is global. 
we're in better shape. Maryland's in better shape than almost any other state in the country. That's the other thing that's frightening. So, well, I guess the question for me becomes like if this was just uh, we're not recognizing the need for alcohol treatment enough, or you know, we mistakenly missed this, or it got overlooked during the opioid epidemic. I feel like there's an easier solution, but when the problem behind it all is maximizing profits, I feel like the solution becomes changing our entire society, which is not necessarily something that I know how to do. Um, You don't have to change the society to make progress, okay? What uh, Voices also has a very active advocacy group. I was part of it, but they use so much... uh, so many acronyms, I couldn't understand what was going on at meeting, so I gave up. Uh, but I'll go back again, because that's what these buttons are about. Um, you can regulate hospitals. You can regulate insurance companies. You can, you can regulate freestanding clinics by law. Okay? And that's what needs to be done. Uh, not impossible. Uh, what you need... It's truckloads of dead babies. I mean, uh, there ain't nothing like waving a picture of a dead kid around in Annapolis. You know, that'll, that'll, that'll get you a vote. Um, they're working on legislation. It takes years to get a piece of legislation through. But you can change system, change systems politically. It can be done. I have done it. I have seen it done. I don't mean revamp everything. I mean repair problems what's well, slow it's very uh, oh, slow <laughs> it, 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 for a little change it'd be five it'd be five yeah. years uh and the hospital association has money uh i used to work around the ama i never seen a more useless bunch of shitheads in my life okay they, your job is to see to it that we make more money that's what they, if somebody would come hmm. up with a suggestion like well why don't we you know why don't we take care of this segment of the population your job is to take care of us yeah, that's just from the doctors. You know, I, um, so, but you can change it. It can be changed locally. I've been involved in that stuff before. <laughs> Marcus is a little genius. He, he he's ramrodding the thing, and so there are things to be done. There are things that can be done. I, I don't disagree with that, and, and I think there can be improvements made through legislation. But I, I guess my take, you know, it kind of goes back to this story. Um, I was in college. There was a lady who was from one of the countries in Africa and we were talking about the differences and she's like, well, you know, one of the differences, if you want uh, a major healthcare procedure, like an operation, you want to be here, not in my country. (laughs) She said, but you know, if you, uh, if one of our community members doesn't have a house, we just all take a day and build them one. And she's like, that's not what it's like here at all. And and just thinking about that, like when we talk about the problems of homelessness and, and hunger, there's more food thrown away each day than yeah. pe- than people who are hungry, and there's more houses available than there are homeless people. And the reason we don't have people in homes and fed is just because as a society, we've chosen to accept that we won't. Like if we all just decided tomorrow that's not going to happen anymore, we would go out and build them all houses or put them in houses that are already built, and we would give them the food off our tables that we throw away every night, and it would just end tomorrow. You know what I mean? So it's like it's really going to take a societal shift to stop thinking the guy with the billion dollars is the place we all want to get to. And we never will. That's the other thing. It's Maybe a carrot not. and a stick. Okay. And, and yeah, we, 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 economically, the Americans aren't poor anymore. They are 
temporarily inconvenienced because they just know that that stuff they just bought or that job they just got or something, they're they're on their way. They're not going to accept the fact that, hey, I worked all my life. I mean, I'm a good example. I worked all my life and hard and diligently, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm wonderful. I'm poor now. Okay. That was a result of actually government uh, intervention into the pension systems. But we want to look at you are you are you're, you're other okay everything is other mm-hmm. i am me i'm the center of the universe and that guy when this clear bear he he's something else he, I, I you know and uh we want to differentiate ourselves from people with problems because and it's got to be their fault because if it ain't their fault that same thing could happen to me and <laughs> i don't do that so it's it's a it's a protective mechanism it's stupid as hell but it is true and anything that you don't identify immediately look at the age look at the age uh, crisis back in the day. I mean, first it was chicken blood eating Haitians. You know, that's who we were blaming. And then, praise the Lord, it's gays. Well, praise the Lord, it's anybody who has sex, okay? <laughs> and uh, we just disassociate deliberately and consciously from people with problems because if we don't disassociate, that could happen to us. Yeah, well, that's exactly what happened with the opioid problem is enough middle class yeah, and upper class, yeah. you know, white people exactly. that are in high positions realize exactly. it was their family members, too. And all of a sudden, money started pouring out from yeah. everyone. <laughs> yeah. it, it's true. And this is a bit of an aside, but during the early years of, of the AIDS crisis, there were no effective treatments. In 1996, they came out with protease inhibitors. They worked. The minute they came out with a working treatment. Nothing else had up to that point. The minute they came out with a working treatment, man, the money was rolling in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because here's something we can sell. And all of a, all of a sudden, the, the doctor's attitudes changed. I can't blame them because it's hard saying, oh, you're going to die. Nothing I can do about it. But as, as soon as they could monetize HIV, there was grants and money coming out of the woodwork. That's just an example of the way this stupid-ass country works. Somewhere... I've read, and I might even be in the, in the um, I don't know where it is, but woman's in uh, Sweden, and she finds a lump in her breast. I mean, this is, this is a reporter talking, you know, and found a lump in her breast. Say, oh, shit. She goes and gets a mammogram, and yes, they, you got a lump. Okay, we can take biopsy right now and tell you what, what it is. Well, it was a benign something or other, and two hours after she went to the doctor, she knew what she didn't have, okay? And <laughs> at, the, at the door... The nurse says, I'm sorry, but you're not a citizen. Uh, I'm going to have to charge you $11, (laughs) okay, for a mammogram and a biopsy. And the things that people used to use, I can't get an appointment with a doctor in less than six weeks, okay? Those who will tell us what a wonderful healthcare system, I think they're fewer than they used to be. But it used to be, you got to wait for care and die in the Canada, you got you got to wait to six, for six weeks to get an appointment with your regular doctor in this country, and that's because they have to carry huge patient loads to make as much money as possible. To so the insurance companies will keep them on their list. Yeah, the amount the insurance companies paying per visit right. has went down so much right. that they, if they, they gotta, don't they, see they carry, thirty exactly. people in a day or whatever, they can't even keep uh, the most lights of on. Time yeah. a minute now. Yeah, they really are. Uh, so that's America. Ain't that well, great? If we were exposed to this idea on the the gambling podcast when we talked to the individual from gambling and the casinos put a 
percentage of whatever it is they make into a fund that pays for any gambling treatment that is needed in, in Maryland. Maryland. Well, and so, like, why have we let big alcohol, who's making record profits, off the hook? Like, right. why isn't there a similar system of just anybody who wants alcohol yeah, treatment? Was, it's paid for. Yeah, he was saying there was plenty of money. He's like, oh yeah, we got money. We can send anybody to treatment. Yeah, a lack of money is not. The problem is where the money is, is where the people want the money is. Um, right. But if big alcohol is funding a, a fund that treatment, what, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a guess, but I know a little bit about foundations and nonprofits. Here's what uh, uh, here's what the game, the casinos are doing. They don't they, the casinos don't want me showing up in Annapolis saying I lost my house and daddy died in a car wreck because he didn't have any money. Blah, blah, blah. He spends all his time at the casino. They don't want that to happen. So we, there, admittedly, there are problem gamblers. We will help those people because we are good. Right. Leave us alone, and we'll do the right thing. What they'll do is they'll set up a nonprofit. They'll set up a foundation, okay? And under the law, to be a tax-free or a nonprofit, untaxable foundation, you only have to give five percent of your net of the worth of the foundation per year to charitable purposes. Okay, five percent. The rest of it is a tax shelter. So there is there are two reasons why they do that. One is for goodwill, apparent goodwill, and the other one is they can shelter two hundred seventy-two billion dollars somewhere in a foundation to to cure the gamblers, and, and it's to their benefit. Uh, it, nothing. I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe anything in America at this time. It's driven by anything but profit. And the other thing is it, it doesn't – most of the people don't realize that. The shit show takes care of that takes place at the top. The, the, guy, the, the, the incompetent people who we, we've dealt with at the rehabs, they don't know they're incompetent. They've been told what to say. They've been told what to do. And that's what they – you know, that's as far as their job and that's all they do it. I mean, that's, so. Well, this not, podcast does not run for profit. Yeah. <laughs> we, we run at a steady deficit yeah. every month. Yeah, me, me too. We've got something in common. No, but yeah. I, and, and you're right. And I don't disagree that there's, you know, there's good uh, public facing reasons for the gambling industry to do this, right? And it keeps people off of their back. And that's wonderful. But we could retroactively do this with big alcohol. We could have this. And, and you know what? Maybe it doesn't change a lot, but there's services available and you're not sitting on that goddamn porch for five and a half hours or correct. driving the sun they for two only, days. Right. If you don't choose to take advantage of the services, then that is your business. But to be discouraged, actively right. discouraged right. from seeking help is a whole different thing. Uh, I have always thought. You keep, do you keep raising your hands? No. I want to. What happened to your girlfriend? Like, what's her story now? Okay, right now, <laughs> right now she's drinking like a fish, and she wants to get get into an inpatient detox. She wants to stop. She really wants to stop. She's got. She's at the point where six hours before she goes into the shakes and stuff and we're gonna have to go now we're stepping on toes can we turn off the mic for a minute well let's uh let's let's wrap this up because we i'm keeping an eye on time here charlie is there yeah, any but, final points you wanted to make before we had to end anything uh, we didn't get to today well i can go on forever with final points right now today i want to get over that the fact that there is a gross prejudice a systemic prejudice against treating detoxing alcoholics as opposed to 
treating and detoxing people with other drug problems. And it's because alcohol is more expensive to treat. Mm. Well, I, we thank you so much for coming on today, Charlie, and spending your Sunday morning with us. Uh, you know, support things, get involved in local policy, right? That's where these changes happen, local policy, and try to start getting changes, man. It, you know, this affects a lot of people. Alcohol is very rampant in our culture, and we, we need the services out there to help people. So get involved, do something, stay safe out there, and uh, we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye, guys. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us. <laughs>